And our reading today comes from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and then also Psalm 121. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having, complete, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we have been on and off intermittently going through the gospel of John. And so we're returning to the gospel of John in chapter 17. And believe it or not, we're going to finish the Gospel of John before Easter. Easter this year, we're going to finish it before Easter this year. And we've already put together the preaching calendar for all of redemption for the rest of the year. And I'm pretty excited about it. We're, uh, right after Easter, we're going to start, we're going to do 10 weeks in the book of Colossians, which is the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae from prison. And then after that, I'm especially excited. Uh, some of you know I love the Old Testament. I'm really excited about the series that's coming after that. It's going to be 21 or 22 weeks, and it's, I think it's titled, uh, We Want a King, and it's really going to be about the life of King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon, the first three kings in the history of Israel. I think that's going to be wonderful, and all of that, of course, points to the Savior coming at some point, Jesus coming. And then once we're done with that series, we're already back into Advent. We have no idea what we're going to do for Advent yet, although we will be anticipating the coming of Christ. And then just mark your calendars. This is interesting. Um, Christmas is on, uh, on a Sunday this year, and so that'll be an exciting day for us to gather. And Well, we'll do something on that day anyway. Don't you worry. So we'll figure that out. Um, so the next today and the next two Sundays, we're going to be kind of a mini-series in John chapter 17. All of John chapter 17 is Jesus praying. And I would call this the real Lord's Prayer. We refer to the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, as the Lord's Prayer. But think about it. Jesus told his disciples, this is how you should pray. So that's like the disciples' prayer. 
This is the real Lord's Prayer because this is the one that he's praying. uh, Most other people, um, many other people call this the high priestly prayer because Jesus actually prays like the high priest in many respects during this prayer as well. At any rate, he prays for all of, of chapter 17. And the outline of the prayer is really pretty easy to be able to see. Now, it's my guess that when Jesus prayed this prayer, he didn't start the prayer in his mind thinking, In the 21st century, I want people who preach chapter 17 to be able to outline it really easy, but it does fall into an easy outline. We're going to look at the first five verses today, and that's Jesus' prayer um, to his Father that both of them may be glorified. He prays for himself, and he prays for the glory of the Father. And we just felt like Psalm 121 so perfectly complemented the text today, and that's why we decided to read that as well. Next week, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. And when we say his immediate disciples, what we mean are those uh, disciples who were physically and chronologically with him in that moment. And the interesting thing about that is that they were there listening to this prayer as Jesus was praying for them. That must have been very encouraging uh, for them. But it's interesting because he also kind of gives them some interesting information in that prayer as well. And then the last seven verses, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all who would come after his immediate disciples. In other words, the last seven verses of this prayer, he's praying for us right now in this room. And I want you to remember that this is still Jesus' last night before uh, uh, they come and arrest him. We're going to see that in chapter 18. When they come and arrest Jesus, carry him away, and they go through his trial, and then they crucify him. So this is still part of that whole famous last words deal of Jesus, those five or six chapters in John that all deal with the last night of his life here on earth. And before we dive in, I want us to consider how often the word glory or glorified is used in this short little five-verse paragraph. It's used five times in five verses. And whether it's glory or glorify, it's the same Greek word. It just has a different derivative of the base. And the basic word is the word doxa. Now, sometimes at the end of a service, we sing the what? The doxology, I love that. And so that's what it is. The doxology is a verse that gives all glory to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the word translated glory, doxa, literally means of weight, or a more contemporary word would be gravitas. It means something that's heavy, and it means to ascribe proper substance and significant to. So so Jesus is praying that proper substance and significance be ascribed to God the Father by God the Father actually glorifying him. And we'll get into that and explain it a little bit. And this weightiness, this glory that we see in this paragraph is for both the Son and the Father, but it is especially the glory that actually comes through the crucifixion. It's a glory that comes through Jesus going to the cross. Now think about that. This glory, this weightiness, this significance comes through three things. It comes through humility, it comes through sacrifice, and it comes through relationship. Now there might be some pretty good practical application for us in our own lives as well, that this glory of God comes through things that we don't often think about, and that would be humility, sacrifice, and relationship. So here we go. 
We're going to unpack this just one verse at a time. There's only five verses to go through. So let's get started with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So if you've been around for all of the book of John, which is maybe the last uh, 18 months, you know that on several occasions, Jesus has said that his time had not come that his hour had not yet arrived, now he's saying his time, his hour has come. And this saying, this idea of the hour has come or my time has come, it was actually a fairly common first century Mediterranean way of saying the opportunity for purpose to be fulfilled is now. If you want the purpose of whatever it is to be fulfilled, whether it's a harvest or, or whatever that might be, that time is now. But we also know that for three years, Jesus had to deal with a bunch of people who wanted his time to be on their schedule and on their agenda. They kept coming to him, asking him to do things that would signify that his time had come. And he's like, no, you got to wait. My time hasn't come. It's not yet my hour. And of course, according to their agenda, their agenda was that he wanted them to attack the Romans and throw off the Roman yoke. And he also had to explain to them that The the job of the Messiah, the purpose and the mission of the Messiah was completely different. He's going to go to the cross. And as he started communicating that idea that he was going to go to the cross to his disciples, they really pushed back. That, That wasn't their idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be, even though it was prophesied in their texts in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. It was prophesied there, but they kept thinking that that God's that God's Messiah, that God's Savior was going to come and be a political savior, a king that would battle the Caesar of Rome and throw off that yoke. And so for three years, he had to deal with people doing that to him. But now it is finally time for Jesus to be glorified that he might glorify his father. And he does that by going to the cross. So this glory issue, the reason Jesus asked to be glorified himself is specifically because it's his desire to glorify the Father. We need to understand that when he asks for this glory, it's it's not a selfish ask. He's not asking it specifically for himself. He's not being self-centered. It's about his genuine desire to glorify the Father. See, I I would just say, I'm not so sure that I would ever want to pray, God, glorify me. And the reason is because I'm a sinner. Jesus never sinned. And the other reason is that I'm not going to the cross. And even if I do, the cross isn't going to do anything for anyone else. So Jesus has never sinned, and he's going to the cross so that you and I might be reconciled to the Father and be saved. That's really important. That's where glory comes from. So Jesus glorifies the Father by going to the cross. Now, how would that glorify the Father? Here's how it glorifies the Father. The cross is actually the finishing of the Father's redemptive work as his Son, Jesus, the perfect sinless sacrifice. And so by doing that, Jesus makes the Father a keeper of his promises. The Father sent the Messiah to do this in order that the Father might keep his promise that he is going to save his people, that he's going to send a Messiah, that there is going to be reconciliation with the Father, that there is eventually going to be a new creation that's going to be ushered in by his Son. And further, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross gives the Father a place for his wrath against sin to be purged 
other than on us, the sinners. This is really good news. God is holy. We are not. We are sinners. Therefore, God has wrath against sin that must be manifest or purged in some way. Now, you can have that wrath and that anger and that, that, that um, uh, consequence of your sin uh, purged on you, if you prefer, or it was purged on Christ at the cross. That's when Jesus actually says, um, gets upset because uh, his father has turned his back on Jesus because he sees him as sin at that moment. You can have your sin purged there instead. That's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And that's the gift to us that he took that sin wrath instead of us. And so that's the good news of the gospel. And, and that gives glory to the Father. It gives glory to Jesus. And it gives us uh, salvation. And so Jesus demonstrated the magnificence of love and grace for the Father by going to the cross. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus glorifies the Father by revealing God's sovereignty over evil, sin, and death on the cross. He glorifies the Father by revealing God's compassion and love for humans by sacrificing on the cross. And he glorifies the Father by making salvation possible for those who would believe. And once again... Uh, we see this here and we see it in verse four, uh, chap, uh, verse 4 of this chapter. It's this thing that I've been kind of pounding on through uh, the middle section and now this last section of the Gospel of John. The idea that the, the Trinity of God, God is one God manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in that community of relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's this shyness and yieldedness by every member of the Trinity towards each other. I mean, you, think, you understand, they're God. You would think they might kind of be puffed up and, and proud of that. And yet, when, when Jesus talks about the Father and the Spirit, he's always exalting them and pushing them forward. When the Father talks about the Son and the Spirit, he's always exalting the Son and exalting the Spirit. When the Spirit talks about the Father and the Son, he's always exalting them and pushing them forward. There's this, there's this uh, incredible submission, yieldedness, and shyness towards each other that, again, should be a model of how people of faith live in community uh, with each other. And so the Son, through God, is in full submission to the Father, and he's joyful about it. He's not necessarily happy about going to the cross, we know that, but he, it gives him great joy that by going to the cross, he is doing the work of the Father, and he is saving God's people. So for you and me, it is the cross of Christ that takes our self-serving, inward self-focus, and turns it outward toward others in humility and service, so that God is glorified as we live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have in the gospel, that's one of our seven value statements at Redemption Church. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. If, if you're part of the gospel, if you're in Christ, it should naturally transform your life to turn you outward. So that's verse 1. Verse 2 then continues, Since you have given him authority, given Jesus, the Son, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So verses 2 and 3 are pretty straightforward. Jesus says to the Father, you've given me all authority over flesh. 
So Jesus is saying there that he is the undisputedly sovereign, specific, and only path to salvation and eternal life. Uh, Jesus eventually gets crucified, and then three days later he, he rises from the grave, he gets out of the tomb, and he spends some time on earth in his resurrected form, contacting his disciples before he ascends in Acts chapter 1 to heaven. And during that time between the crucifixion, uh, between the resurrection and his ascent, in Matthew 28, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, All authority in heaven has, and on earth has been given to me. I have all authority over everything. And then he says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he has this authority. Jesus has this authority because he is God who became flesh. That was his mission, to be incarnated. And, and, and he became human. And so if you want more information on this incarnational aspect of Jesus, uh, our first sermon during Advent on November 28th, it's on the website. We talked about the incarnation for 40 minutes. It's really helpful. And notice, notice also here, those who are saved did nothing. There, there were no works that they had to do to work their way to God. There, there was no standard that they had to live up to. There was nothing where God said, you know, you could be saved if you were just worthy enough. Now work on that worthiness, would you please? There's nothing. They just believe. And, it's, and that, even that belief is a work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. There's nothing that we do for our salvation because Jesus has done all the work. Jesus fulfilled the law when he was here. And then he went to the cross as the last, final, finished, sacramental uh, sacrificial lamb for our sin. So it's all the work of God giving us this incredible gift through his son Jesus. And then verse 3. Verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, again, this is, it's just clear that Jesus is saying, and Jesus is teaching, and he does this in many other places in the New Testament, that he is the only path to salvation. Uh, earlier in John, when, uh, a few months ago when we were in John chapter 14, we got to John chapter 14 verse 6, where Jesus says to his dis disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, no other way. I'm the truth, no other truth. And I'm the life, there's no other life. And in case the disciples didn't get it, he adds this. And no one... Not one person comes to the Father except through me. So it's true. I know we wrestle with this, but it's true. Jesus is exclusive. There are not many ways to God. There are not different paths to God. There's one way, and that is through and with Jesus Christ. And so, if you're not someone who embraces Jesus as your Savior, I would hope and pray and ask that you excuse and forgive those of us who do embrace Jesus as Savior when we press in on you, often probably more than you would care for, and ask you, will you believe in Jesus? Will you give your life to Christ? Here's what's not going on there. We don't work on commission. 
If, if you say, yeah, I'll give my life to Christ, we're not going back to our church going, I get my commission now, I got one, okay? We don't have some leather theological belt where we put a little notch on the belt if you say yes. That's not what's happening. And here you go. We're, we're not trying to end our friendship with you, although I know sometimes it feels that way. I get that. None of those things. It's just that we know Christ and we know the freedom that we have in that. We know the forgiveness we have in that. We understand the grace that we've received in that and we want it for you. It's just that simple. And maybe you're not there yet. Maybe the Holy Spirit isn't working right now. But that's our prayer, that the Holy Spirit will work in your life to, to convert your heart, to open your eyes, to help your mind to be able to see uh, the truth of this. And now, as straightforward as verse 3 is, there is something introduced in verse 3 that I think of, is of great value to us. And next week, it, it gets talked about more in those verses 6 through 19 as well. But I want to talk about it right now. Notice that Jesus was sent. He was sent by the Father. For Advent, we did this series called The Aspects of Jesus. And so during the four weeks, we talked about incarnation. We talked about sacrifice. We talked about new creation. And we talked uh, uh, about sanctification. Those are all aspects of Jesus, and they're all correct aspects of Jesus. But honestly, there are more aspects of Jesus, so that list isn't completed. And in fact, I would argue, we would argue, that Jesus' sentness is also an essential aspect of who he is, and it's a critical part of his identity. He was sent by the Father to be Savior, to be teacher, to be ambassador, to be priest, to be king, and to be the last sacrificial lamb. And, and, and he humbly accepted his mission of being sent by the Father. So the question now becomes, if you're in Christ, what have you been sent to do? What is our sentness in the midst of this? And if you are in Christ, you've been sent in some way, you've been called, you've got some stuff to do in some way. Maybe, maybe you have been sent as a believer to your unbelieving family. And I understand, because I have an unbelieving had mostly an unbelieving family, some that believe now. But I understand that might be the most difficult sentence that anybody could go into. I understand that. That's hard, but maybe that's what you've been sent to do. Uh, maybe you, you have been sent into your marketplace. Whatever your job is, whatever your vocation is, to be salt and light in a different way than, than the marketplace you usually demonstrates. Um, maybe you have been sent to volunteer in children's ministry. Emmy gave me $5 to say that, didn't you? <laughs> Actually, she didn't give me anything. I came up with that all on my own. Maybe you've been sent into children's ministry. Maybe you've been sent to go into the prisons or to Hope Women's Center and work with them. Or maybe you've been sent to redemption, foster care, and adoption. Maybe for a season, and believe me, it's a long season, maybe you've been sent by God to be a godly, God-honoring parent. That's your mission field. That's your ministry. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe, maybe you've been sent to study something in school that's going to challenge you and yet also at the same time prepare you to make a difference out in this dark and broken world that so desperately needs a Christian worldview infused into technology, Medicine, the arts, science, maybe film, real estate development, graphic design, music, finance, 
the law, or education. Maybe that's your sentence. And maybe, maybe if you're in the twilight of your years, you are now being sent to be wise counsel for those younger people who have the courage and insight to listen to your wisdom. See, I'm not sure specifically where each of you have been sent, but this much I do know. If you know Jesus, you have not been sent to just sit on the sidelines as a consumer waiting for others to be sent to you. Oh, I feel the spirit moving now, my brothers and sisters. All right, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So verse 4 is like an internal summation. He's stopping, Jesus is stopping for a moment to, to sort of summarize. Jesus did what he was called to do. He's telling the Father that. He spoke boldly and truthfully, and now he's going to willingly die for others. And it was his joy to do so. I, I mentioned that earlier. He did this with great joy. He wasn't happy about it. Nobody's happy to get crucified, but, but he did it with joy because he knew of the outcome. He did it with joy so that you and I could live without the eternal weight of sin. The author of Hebrews writes about this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But like verse 3, this summation in verse 4 also calls to us. What are we called to do? What has God set before us? What has God set before me? What has God set before you? And my guess is that it's probably a lot less than Jesus did. And yet we still need to be called and we still need to get up and do it. Uh, I, I, I come to this maybe once a month, this passage in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus says, he says, if you're going to come with me, you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow. If you're going to come with me, deny yourself, pick up your cross. And I've said many times, there's a universal and a unique aspect to this call on our lives. He says, deny yourself. That's the universal aspect of Jesus' call on our lives. Everybody has to deny themselves. The last shall be first, all of that stuff. Okay, But then the unique part of that is pick up your cross. See, each of us has a cross, but our crosses are different, right? Every one of us is bearing a cross or several crosses, but they're different. My cross is not the same as your cross. Your cross is not the same as my cross. But here's the problem. When we get so wrapped up only in our crosses and expect everybody else to know about our cross, but us to not know anything about your cross, that's a problem. That's called one-way garbage, okay? We need to share our cross, and we need, in a, in a community of faith, people who follow Jesus, that they need to respond and be able to see that and, 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 and minister and serve. But we also need to be uh, really purposeful about going out and finding out what the other crosses are out there in this community so that we can also submit ourselves to those crosses, so that we can also experience the joy of serving others in their burden of bearing their own cross as well. And then Jesus continues his summation with a call to action in verse 5. And now he says to his father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before this 
uh, with you before the world existed. In other words, my mission is about accomplished, Father. And when it is, I want you to bring me back to where I was before all this last 33 years took place. I would really like to come back and be with you. And he says, he says, in your presence before the world existed. This undeniably confirms Jesus' pre-existence. It confirms his divinity. And it confirms his equality with the Father. And yet, he came for us and submitted to the cross. He's equal with the Father, but he never felt like that equality was something to latch onto. Instead, he humbled himself and came and became a sacrifice on the cross. As we wrap up today, let me just mention this. In our world today, it seems as though to me that glory is something that every human being is pursuing. And yet very few who are pursuing it are willing to do or to know what it takes to bask in true glory. We try to find glory at work. We try to find glory on the athletic field. We try to find glory on our digital platforms or at the gym or at our school, wherever else we're trying to find glory. And I got to say, there's nothing wrong with those places, venues, and spaces. God created those. Those are good things. And, and we even achieve some victories in those spaces and those events and those places. And that's, and that's really good, too, and we should celebrate those victories. But we need to keep those things in perspective because those things are all temporal. And they're never going to fulfill us in a way that only God can fulfill us. They are fulfilling in some ways, but not in an eternal, complete way that only God can do for us. That eternal weight of God's glory, that's something to truly value and to seek. It's Paul writing in 2 Corinthians to his disciples in Corinth and saying, this life of faith is challenging and hard, but we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, that's what he calls all the suffering and challenges and tribulation that we experience in our years here on earth. Paul calls it light momentary affliction. Why? Because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The more we understand God's glory the less we're going to fall into this trap of thinking that glory actually comes from us. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we just thank you for your word and its truth, and we pray. We pray that we would have the courage to be humble like Jesus, to be shy and yielded like Jesus, to pursue your wisdom and your will and to pursue your call on our lives, wherever that might be. Wherever you have us, let us be light and salt. Give us the courage to be able to do that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to that time in our service where we uh, reflect and we respond. Uh, we do that in a couple of ways. Um, we like to sing together, so we're going to sing two more songs uh, together, but also we come to the Lord's table uh, during this time. We have communion, so if we have, we have communion servers today, if you'd come forward, there's Sarah, yes, uh, if you'd come forward. So uh, 
if you're here and you're, and you're a follower of Christ and you're going to take communion, you just come out into the center aisle and come down here and split off and then you get one of these uh, communion kits, take it back to your table. And when you feel ready and you feel uh, your table, take it back to your chair. I know the difference between a table and a chair. Take it back to your chair. And when, you, when you're ready, when the Spirit leads you, when you feel prayed, then you take the, the wafer, you eat it, you turn the little kid over, you drink the juice. That's communion. And, and what communion is about is on the last night of Jesus' life, so on this very night that we're looking at here, it's recorded in the other Gospels that during the Passover meal, Jesus kind of changed things up. And, and, and the reason is because he is now the lamb. And so at one point in the dinner, he took the bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you, because his body is going to be broken on the cross. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. And then after they had eaten their fill, he took the cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And it's my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. He also bled on the cross. And that's a reference to that. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul comes along and says, as often as we eat this bread and, and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And, and so at Redemption Church, we take this to mean that when we gather together for a time of worship and a time of teaching and a time of gospel proclamation, it is also a time to share in the Lord's table. And so we do this every week. And, and it is a routine, but it shouldn't be a routine in the sense that we, we begin to do it without our minds being involved, without our hearts being involved. This is a liturgy that calls us to remember that we're lost without a Savior. And by stepping into that aisle, you admit you're a you're. you're you're a sinner who needs a savior, but also by stepping into the aisle, you are not only confessing your sin, but you're also celebrating that you have a savior in Jesus. So it's a time of confession and celebration when you come forward. So let's do that now.
Love you, church. Thankful for you. Thank you for worshiping with us and learning from God's word. You know, later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verse 30, John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so these words we studied today were written, church, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's go live in that life that Jesus gives us. Go in peace, live all of life, all for Jesus and for his glory. We'll see you next week.